I want us to open our Bibles this morning back to the book of Romans. We began four weeks ago this series, just marching through uh, Paul's letter to the church at uh, Rome. And uh, today we find ourselves after three weeks in chapter one, we find ourselves here in uh, chapter two, and we will try to take this on in its uh, entirety this morning. Uh, It is human nature to seek the path of least resistance. That whenever you uh, meet up with adversity or change or hardship, anytime something is made uncomfortable, our brains, unless they are trained otherwise, uh, and it requires a great deal of training and discipline, that unless our our brains are trained otherwise, it is always gonna seek out the path of least resistance, that which makes it more comfortable, the way that is easiest. Uh, That's why we want a routine paycheck. Uh, it's more comfortable. That's why we want the temperature, we want the thermostat set, set somewhere between 68 and 72 degrees. That's an argument in your house, I'm sure. Uh, we all want comfort. Even in the life of faith and what it means to be a Christian, we, we, we really, if we're honest, we want that which is comfortable. We want a religion that is convenient. We want a religion that is accessible when we need it, but uh, we don't really want one that's disruptive. We really don't want a faith that challenges us, that makes us uncomfortable. Uh, We want just enough religion to where I can call myself a follower of Christ. I want enough religion that I can count myself as being a part of of the Christian camp, but I don't really want enough to, to alter my life. When I became a Christian at the age of 21 as a college student, not having grown up in church, I had this sense that uh, after I committed my life to Christ on a Saturday night, and I went to church for the first time that, that next morning to, to stand unashamedly to confess my faith in Christ and to be baptized and to identify with the people of God as a new follower of Christ, one that had just been converted, one that had been born again. I had this sense that I was going to be woefully behind in the life of faith. That here I was as as a 21-year-old college student. I didn't grow up in, in church, and I just knew that I was going to be greatly disadvantaged not growing up in church. That I was going to be far behind all of these these followers of Christ who uh, had passionately pursued the call of God upon upon their life. That somehow I was going to be woefully behind and, and disadvantaged. It didn't take long and I realized how naive I was because it was just a few months into it that I discovered that, that those who populated the life of, of the church, and it's true in every American church, those that populated that congregation, my first church family, they, they, were, not, they were not impassioned followers of Christ. Well, they were confessing Christians but they had become so familiar with with the gospel, if they ever really understood its profundity at all, but they had been around the gospel for for so long and it had become so familiar to them that what was prevalent, the spirit that was prevalent in that room was one of apathy, one of indifference. 
And it burdened me as, as, as a new convert, as a new follower of Christ. This was something that, that was very alarming to me. Because my conversion was something that was so cataclysmic in, in my life. It was something that was such a, such a departure from the former life that, that I was living. That when I saw the apathy and the indifference that was prevalent in the church, it just weighed heavy upon me. It was a burden to me. And, and I believe sincerely that, that it was very much a part of the call that God was placing upon my heart. It was just very disturbing to me. As a college student, I went to my first Sunday school class, and in that Sunday school class with other college students, in my zeal, in my, in my passion, in my newfound faith, I was very much interested in the stories of, of those, my peers, that were there with me in that Sunday school class. And, and I would ask them, tell me about your experience with Christ. What was it that, that happened in your life? What were the things that transpired that, that brought you to the place of following after Christ? And in my zeal and my passion, I, I could tell that my question to my classmates in Sunday school, that, it, that, was, that my question was very off-putting. It made them very uncomfortable. And I would say that in 99.9% .9 of, the, of the cases, when I was making those kinds of, of inquiries, tell me about your experience, what, what brought you to this place of, quit, uh, to this place of commitment, in 99.9% .9 of those situations, you know what the answer was? I just grew up in church. It's all I've ever known. I've always been a Christian. And as a new believer whose life had been dramatically transformed by this new birth in Christ Jesus, it, it, it was kind of shocking to me to go into church and I saw, I saw people there that I knew, people that, that in my conversion I knew with whom I could no longer associate. And yet, and yet here I am for the first time and, I, and they're in church. People that I knew in my former life that I had already determined I could no longer associate with them. I could no longer run with them, if you will. And yet here they were. And in my, na my naivety, I realized that, I realized what it was to have, to have a confession without a conversion. That a person can easily have a confession of faith but no conversion. That there can be a confession without a commitment. That there can be a confession of faith, but no bearing of fruit, no evidence of that faith in their life. Paul's dealing with the same issue today. As we come to Romans chapter 2, Paul is warning the Jewish people that you have come to a dangerous place. And if we are wise, we will read ourselves as those who are called to be God's chosen, the people of God, the community of faith. We would do well to read ourselves into this text this morning. 
Because as we hear these words, as we read these words, we realize that there, there is something, while it can be very advantageous to grow up in church, to know the story of faith, that there are, so, there are also dangers in your church membership. There are dangers that are very real in having grown up in church. Being close to the holy, being so familiar with the story of, of the gospel, that you take it for granted, that you become indifferent, that you become apathetic. That's what had happened to the Jews that Paul is addressing. Jews, the chosen people of God, the people of a, of a covenant. And because they believe themselves to have this special relationship because of this, this covenant, and it's a story they all knew that every Jew knows to this day, that it's a covenant, a story that a birthing of a people going all the way back to Abraham, the father of their faith. But in their presumptuousness, in their arrogance, they said, oh, I don't, we don't have to be obedient. Look, I'm with Abraham. We know that God made a covenant with Abraham. We're a part of the covenant. Anytime the prophets would try to call them to, re to repentance and obedience to be the people of God, hey, we don't need obedience. We're with Abraham. We're a part of that deal that, that has been brokered by God. It's a dangerous station in life. It is a dangerous place to be. And what we have in Romans chapter 2 is a transition. I wish there was no chapter divisions because I think you get more of the rhetorical flow of what Paul is doing. Because going back in chapter 1 in verses 19 through 32, the verses we considered two weeks ago, Paul is, Paul is sketching a portrait here of all the sins of the Gentiles, at, at least from the perspective of Hellenistic Jews in his day and time. This was their view of, of Gentiles and, and their behavior. But now then what Paul is going to do in, in Romans 2 is now then he's drawing a bead on the Jewish people. And he says to them, the very things that you condemn are the things that you do. And you will nonetheless be exempt. You will not be exempt from the wrath of God and the final judgment of God just because of some favored nation. Don't think that there's some favored nation clause in, in the covenant relationship, in the covenant agreement that somehow exempts you from the judgment of God. And if we are wise this morning, we will attune our minds and our heart to the dangers of church membership, the dangers of being familiar with the holy. He describes it beginning in, in verse 1. This first danger is evident in verses 1 through 11. I'll articulate it, what it is later, but I want us to read these verses first. To hear Paul's emphasis, he says, therefore, now it's a word of transition in light of everything that I've just said, and you would do well to go back and read everything that, that he has just said. He's already emphasized that, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, that they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. And that word practice is going to be a redundant phrase. Practice what you do, how you live. Therefore, 
he says. And now he's speaking to the Jewish people, and this will become more evident as the verses unfold. Therefore, you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. Therefore, you, therefore you are without excuse, he says there in verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you. That is, every individual, every person that considers themselves to be morally superior to those described in the preceding verses, listen, by your judgment of them, you condemn yourself. By you looking in a pejorative way at their life and their things, what you presume that that they do, in your judgment of them, it ricochets back upon you. Oh, you may not, you may not, that sin may not be your sin, but your sin emerges from the same wicked heart as theirs, and and as such, you are without excuse. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. Now, notice what Paul does here in verse 3, verses 3 and 4. But do you suppose this, O man? Now, what Paul is doing here is he's, a, he's, he's adopting a di- what's called a diatribe style. He, he's, he's adopting kind of a, a diatribe tool. A diatribe is, a, is a, an imaginary conversation between um, a teacher and students. And while Paul may be in this conversation, this, uh, this uh, dialogue partner that he is imagining in his mind, uh, while he is having this conversation, while it might be an imaginary individual, the foes are no less real. So what Paul is addressing in this, in this mock conversation, in this diatribe that he is allowing us to be privy to, he's anticipating questions and opponents to the, to the facts that that he's stating. And so in, in verse three, but do you suppose, oh man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same thing yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. Now, this is where Paul is starting to use Old Testament language, words that is going to be, that is going to ring familiar to those Jewish and Jewish Christians that, that are hearing his words. This idea of kindness and tolerance and patience, those are words that in the Old Testament are associated with the salvation of God and the mercies of God and the goodness of God and the kindness of God. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness, tolerance, patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? And what God is saying to the Jews is that your your election, the fact that you were chosen by me, it, it does not actually free you from the potential of eternal judgment. But listen, and listen, church, this is important much later whenever we deal with doctrine of election and things like that. Election, uh, election is, not, is not a privilege to be taken lightly, to be, uh, to be 
abused. Election is not, does not mean exemption. What election means is expectation. That you are the elect of God, that you are the chosen people of God, that you are the community of faith. And all this translates to church. The fact that you are a member of the church, the fact that you have been baptized, the fact that you have done the things that Christians ought to do, having done that does not exempt you from the final judgment of God if that supposed faith expression is not informing your life, your practice, how you live. And so this idea of elect doesn't mean exempt, it's expectation means obligation and, and, and responsibilities. See, these Jews are very vocal in their condemnation of, of, of the Gentiles and all these former behaviors that have already been listed. Uh, listed. But what Paul, is, what Paul is emphasizing to them is this in plain terms. When you get to the judgment, of, when you get to the judgment bar of God, the question is not who did you condemn? like the Jews are doing of the Gentiles? That's not the question at the judgment bar of God that is most pressing. Who do you condemn? Who did you condemn? Whose behavior did you look down upon and judge? The only question that matters is, what did you do? How did you live? God's never going to ask me my opinion of you. He's never going to ask me my opinion of world affairs. What did you think about the debauchery of, of the world? Do you know what he's going to ask? What did you do with what you know? What did you do and how did the revelation that I gave to you regarding my son and, and what it means to walk in relationship with you, how did that affect the life that, that you lived? In verses 5 through 8, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. This is just the opposite of storing up treasure in heaven. In your rebellion, in your stubbornness, in your refusal to repent, to be obedient to what you know to be the word of God, all you're doing is building up wrath, storing up wrath for yourself. It has a cumulative effect of the wrath that will be experienced. In the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, this is one of the ways we know that he's addressing the Jews that will hear this letter. All of this is Old Testament language that, that is familiar to their ears. Verse 6, who will enter, who will render to each person, speaking of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality and eternal life. He's not speaking about the, the honor and glory that the earth has to offer, that, that an earthly pursuit has to offer. Uh, he's speaking to those that understand that honor and glory is retained and it is available for those that pursue the resurrected life, that will be a part of the resurrection. But to those who are selfishly ambitious, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness and wrath and indignation. What he's doing is leveling the playing field. What Paul is doing here, he's, he's establishing in these, in these first few chapters, he's, he's establishing a rhetorical framework 
that really levels the playing field of all people, Jew, Gentile, it does not matter. The only hope is the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. In, in Christ alone do we have our hope as the people of God. The sin of the Jews is not that they judged the Gentiles, not, not, that they, not that they self-ascended themselves to the throne of God to judge others, that's not it. The sin that is being pointed out here is they do the very same thing that they condemn. And so the first danger of growing up in church, the first danger in being close to the things of God is exceptionalism without identification. Thinking that you are the exception to the wrath of God that is to be received because of disobedience and sin. It says that we are a people that are to, to identify with all of humanity. All of this is moving forward, this rhetorical framework that Paul is establishing. Everything is moving towards Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And we have to avoid, we have this, we have this incredible capacity. It's very unattractive in all of us. We have this propensity within our own hearts to be ignorant of ourselves, but arrogant towards others in our judgment of them. When really what the gospel does is call us to identify ourselves with, with one another, with all people as sinners in need of grace. There's a second danger that comes with membership and familiarity to the things of, of God. I, I want to read it to you first here, beginning in, in verse 12 through 16. He says there in chapter 2, verse 12, for, for all who have sinned, without the law. Now, and now, now notice what Paul is doing here. He's simply expounding upon what has been established here in, in, in verse 11. For there is no partiality with God. That's the emphasis. You're not the exception. You may as well identify the, common, the commonality with all people is that we are all sinners in need of grace because God is not partial. Peter said the same thing in Acts chapter 10 and in verse 34 that God, God shows no partiality. And that becomes important later on when we get to chapters 9, 10, and 11 and our understanding of, of those things of what it means to be the elect of God. That in the book of James, when, when God condemns the sin of partiality, he, he's not himself going to be partial. God, God is impartial. And so now he, he expounds upon this, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers. Here it is, that idea of practicing again. But the doers of law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are, are the law to themselves. And that they show the work of the law written in their hearts. Remember in, in chapter 1, Paul said uh, there in, uh, back in verse 20, verse 21, 
Verse 20 said that we're, we're without excuse. And you want to paint these Gentiles in a pejorative picture to, to think that you want to do a broad brush stroke of, of their behaviors and their, and their sins. There, there are many Gentiles that act according to what has been revealed to them. Law is, is written in their heart. and They may not have it in hand, but it, but it is written in their heart, their conscience bearing witness. And that verse 15 is that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience hearing, bearing witness in their thoughts, alternately accusing or, or else defending them. On the day, and again, Old Testament language, familiarity with the final judgment, on the day when according to my gospel, Paul's not being arrogant, He's simply saying that there are other alternative teachings out there that are subverting uh, the gospel. But according to my gospel, the one that has been entrusted to me, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Now be careful, there, there are Judaizers out there, Paul would, could easily add to this. There's Judaizers out there who would acknowledge that, that, that Christ is the way, but you still need to practice your, your Jewish faith. You still need to hold on to your, to your Jewishness. Still need, still need to, be, to be circumcised. And yet what, what Paul is doing is he expounds upon that statement that God shows no partiality and he's and he's spelling out why and knowing that he's moving towards that conclusion in chapter 3 and verse 23 for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and so in verses 13 through 15 as we as we see here he's 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 parenthetically explaining how can how can God judge equally both the Jews and the Gentiles. How does God, who has called the Jews to be his elect, his chosen people, how can, how can, how can God rightly judge them equally, both Jew and Gentile? And what Paul is saying in these words that I just read is that, is that being without the written law, talking about Gentiles, being without the written law, Mosaic law, is not an excuse for the Gentiles when they sin. But here's the, here's the flip side of that. Having possession of the law, as the Jews do, having possession of, of, the, of the Mosaic law, does not exempt the Jews when they sin. Each will be judged equally by God. Possession and knowledge of the law. Possession and knowledge of the wall of the law as the Jews had does not mean that one is exempt from judgment. As Paul has said in chapter 1, verse 20, they were without excuse. And so the second danger that we all face in growing up in church is knowledge without obedience. To think that, that, the, that the sum total, that, that the end game is to have knowledge of the Word of God. 
That somehow the calling of God in our life is, is completed by going to another Bible study, familiarizing ourselves all the more with the Word of God. And it, become a, and it becomes a very real danger when you begin to think, because I have knowledge, because I have an awareness, because I, I, can, I, can, I can teach the Word of God, or because I know the Word of God, because I know the story of the gospel, that I'm exempt from the final, final judgment of God. There is, listen, there is no judgment scene, and this is not salvation by works. There is not a single judgment scene in the entirety of Scripture that is separated from works. There is not a single biblical scene of the final judgment of God apart from works. And Bobby, that sounds an awful lot by, like salvation by works, no but our works prove out our faith. It is in our works that our faith is proved out, that the genuineness of our new birth is proved out. And what Paul is pushing toward is this, this understanding that there is no salvation, there is no hope apart from Christ alone. Not our works, it's not our birthright. It's not how familiar we are with the gospel. How has it transformed the heart and affected our, our practice? And so it's a very real danger that we, can have, that we can have knowledge without obedience. We can also have identification without representation. That is, it's, very real, it's a very real possibility that when you grow up in church and you have, enough, you, have enough, you have enough religion to count yourself as being part of the Christian camp, there's a very real danger that, that you know enough and you have enough to identify as Christian, to call yourself Christian. But out there, it looks something completely different. Now, Paul describes it this way in verse 17. And this is important because Paul is redefining what it means to be a Jew what it means to be the people of God, what it means to be the elect, what it means to be the chosen of God, what it means to be a particular people. But, but if you bear the name Jew, you can fill in church member. But if you bear the name church member, or you bear the name Christian, and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will, and approve the things that are essential, being instructed of the law, and are confident that you, that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness. And that was the, that was the reason God had called out Israel to set them apart from all the other, other nations. That they might be a light. Isaiah makes this very clear. That they might be a light to the world. That others would be drawn to them. The uniqueness of this life of faith and trust in God. That others, as they live in darkness and despair, that they would see you, the people of God, you, the church, and they would be drawn to you. Verse 20, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. You, therefore, who teach another, do, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do, do you steal? You who say that one should, commit, one should not commit adultery, do, do you commit adultery? You who 
abhor idols? Do you rob temples by that? Paul probably referring to a passage back in in Jeremiah, a reference to Jeremiah, when one of the accusations of, of that prophet was against the people of God because they had brought tokens from pagan, pagan tent temples and put them in the temple of God. You boast in the law, verse 23, you boast in the law through your breaking the law. Do you dishonor God? For the name of God, and here is the indictment against them, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Because of your failure to be the people that you have been called to be, because of your failure to be obedient to the principles and precepts, because of the life that is being practiced out there, you're no longer a light. In fact, as people have seen you, they they view it as a reason not to become a child of God. You know, my father didn't become a Christian until just a few years before his, his death at the age of Uh, 59, 60, became a Christian just a few years prior. My father was one of the best men I ever knew. Very moral, upright, virtuous man. Just wasn't a Christian until five years before his death. Do you know what his biggest hang up was about the life of faith? My dad didn't have some, uh, it, it, it wasn't that he had all these questions about the Christian faith. Wasn't that he had these great intellectual stumbling blocks that had to be overcome. You know why my father was so late in becoming a Christian? Because of Christians. Because of Christians. He worked with professing Christians. He heard them talking about their exploits on Monday. They were drunks. They were serial adulterers. They were profane men, and my dad was none of those things. He was a good, virtuous man of character. So when preachers back in that day stopped by and tried to share their faith with him, to talk about the urgency of him becoming a Christian and a follower of Christ, you know what my dad's response was? Why should I? I'm better than any of those guys you have down there at your church. I'll stack my life up against anyone you have down at your church right now. I know who goes to your church. I work with them. The third danger is identification without proper representation. Final danger of growing up in church, the final danger of lifelong membership is ceremonialism without conversion. Listen to these closing words of Paul. For indeed, circumcision circumcision is of, of value if you practice the law. You can fill in baptism there. We got our own ceremony, don't we? For indeed, baptism is of value if you practice the law. But, but if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision, your baptism, has become unbaptism, uncircumcision. So if the unbaptized man keeps the requirements of the law, the uncircumcised man, will not his unbaptism be regarded as baptism, his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? 
And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? The answer to those questions is yes in verses 26 and 27. For if he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. These words of Paul to his Jewish hearers sound a great deal like, like the words of Jesus to the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23, the series of woe passages, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. You who put on all the ceremonial airs, who look good on the outside, who, who are really nothing more than whitewashed sepulchers. You look great on the outside, all your ceremonialism, all your pomp and circumstance, all of your religiosity, but you know what? You're like a rotting, stinking corpse on the inside. If you grow up in church, it's a very real possibility that you can go through all the ceremonial stuff you can join the church. You can be baptized. And yet you miss out on conversion. Because where there is proper conversion, those things will, will happen. The, where there is a proper conversion, we, will not, uh, we cannot keep you from the baptistry waters. You will want to identify with the people of God. We won't have to coax you down. Now, I know when we hear this message, I know when you read Romans 2, you think, man, Bobby, I, I sure don't feel very good after this sermon. You know what Paul would say? Good. Good. It means you're in the right place. If you feel bad after hearing these words and hearing this message, it means you're where you're supposed to be. It means you are at the right spot to receive God's grace and to live God's grace with gratitude and thanksgiving. Let's pray together. Our Father, we confess that our eyes need to be opened on occasion. How easy it is for any one of us to grow overly familiar with your grace and mercy, to become so familiar with the telling of the gospel story that we take it for granted Father, I pray that we might make those hard choices as the people of God to be a unique and distinctive people, knowing that we are called to be a light of the world, that none would be shunned because of us, that none would run away because of our dereliction of duty and responsibility, but that, Lord, because of Christ in us, others might be drawn unto you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.